reading for the book of Ephesians. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Can I ask you to stand with me as we pray this morning? As we approach God's word, and earlier this morning I was, I was just, you know, uh, meditating, and I was especially thinking about those this morning who would like to be here but can't for any number of reasons. And I also was thinking about people of you who are here but yet in the midst of sometimes some soul-crushing type experiences and burdens. And I was just reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Apostle Paul seems to be going through something that we're not quite sure about, but he says... My grace is sufficient for you, or God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so I'd just like for us to pause and pray for sustaining grace for those of us who've gathered and for those who, for whatever reason, want to be here today but, but can't. So can we just right now bow our heads, close our eyes, and can we, maybe you're thinking of someone right now, maybe you're thinking about your own experience in your own life, and let's together pray for sustaining grace and for God's power to be made manifested and real in our own experience of weakness. Lord, what a joy it is to gather. What a joy it has been to be able to um, just lift our voices together and singing some of these great songs today that have pointed us again to you to a, a deeper vision of who you are. Lord, I, I'm, I'm caused to think of people today who, for a variety of reasons, want to be here but can't. Some are walking through uh, deep waters of, of difficulty and sadness, and so we're, our prayer for them today is that um, your grace would be sufficient for them and that they, in this moment, would uh, experience and feel this overwhelming sense of your sustaining grace. Yes, Lord, even right now as we pray for people that, that they will experience in this very moment the, the nearness of your presence. 
There are others of us who are here right now. We're standing shoulder to shoulder, and, and, and yet for some of us, there are, there are, there's pain and there's hurt and difficulty. And as we've been singing this morning, um, I, I pray that you will continue to give us a, 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 a bigger vision of who you are. And I pray for sustaining grace for those of us who are here right now standing in your presence. May we each sense in a very special and profound way enabling grace, sustaining grace. And God, may your power today be made perfect in our weakness. For Lord, when we are weak, you are strong. Thank you, Lord. And as we look to your word, we pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, you to lead us into all truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Woo. Time for another cup of coffee. <laughs> it's good to be together, and uh, what a joy to sing. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, you know, every, every week, uh, what a joy it is to come and be able to just sing and to be led in worship, and there are people in our church uh, who uh, volunteer to make this happen week after week, and uh, I hope it's not lost on us uh, just how valuable and important everyone who's involved in our worship, music, sound, tech ministry is. Uh, sometimes it's a thankless job. Uh, let's show our appreciation to Jesse and all the team who are involved uh, in leading us in worship. Week after week, um, it, was, it was a good morning of worship, uh, Jesse, and, um, and just uh, enjoyed singing and, and lifting uh, our voices in, in song and praise to the Lord. Uh, my name is Russell, by the way, if you're, if you're new, I serve as the lead pastor here at Philpot, and we're really glad to have you with us, and we're looking at a book in the Bible called Philippians. You know, memory is a very precious gift. And perhaps memory and remembering becomes even more meaningful. I think maybe as you get older, you have a chance to, to look back upon uh, events and things throughout, throughout your life. Uh, Facebook does a good job at helping us remember things, right? And have you checked your memory for today? Uh, and maybe something uh, popped up uh, of some memory from, from uh, a few years ago and uh, a picture of the kids or a family moment with something. And, and, you know, Facebook does a good job of helping us remember uh, special events. I know, I know uh, there was a time when I used to enjoy visiting home and uh, always go down into the basement and dig up a photo album. You know what a photo album is? Uh, it's a book with picture, actually pictures printed in, in, in them and, and be able to, to look, through, uh, look through the album and just bring back memories of, of childhood and experiences. And memory, memory is a very precious thing. And, you know, we as, we as believers, we're, we are a remembering people. We're, the, the call to remembrance is woven throughout, throughout the scriptures. And from the very beginning... Uh, Christians find themselves gathering around tables of remembrance. And, and while remembering connects us to the past in meaningful ways, there's a sense in which remembering is really for the future. Remembering can, can serve as a powerful motivator in our lives. Remembering also in, can inspire imagination. 
uh, author John Michael Green, who, who has written a number of best-selling novels, including uh, a book called The Fault in Our Stars, which became a movie. Who saw the movie The Fault in Our Stars? Yeah. And so there, there, there's a line in one of his earlier novels that, that said, imagining the future is a kind of nostalgia. Remembering, imagining the future is a kind of nostalgia. And, and so the point being is that we, we sometimes predict what the future will be like by using our memories. And so if you think of, you know, maybe a first-time event or maybe someone, you know, you're going to get married, uh, you're looking forward to your wedding day, and, and, and how do you imagine what your wedding day is going to be like? Well, you look back upon weddings you've attended or, or, or pictures you've seen. You, you draw back into your, your, your memory to help you imagine what this day is going to be like. And so we predict what the future will be like by using our memories. We can take bits and pieces like who's going to be there, where it's going to be, and try to put all that together into this simulation of events. Well, we're taking a closer look at an ancient Christian letter found in the Bible. I've lost my puppy. Written by the church planning missionary Paul, to a church he started in the ancient city of Philippi. And Paul begins this letter in a posture of remembering. It's, it's quite likely that 10 years have passed, and now Paul is looking back, he's remembering. He's remembering his experiences, the good, you know, the, the not so good. All the different events, and, and most importantly, he's remembering the people. And this memory serves a very important function, as he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so he remembers all the experiences, the people, and from the soil of remembrance grows thanksgiving and prayer. So, let's jump back into this letter as we read Philippians chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse number 9, and we'll read down to verse number 19. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. May God bless the reading of his word. Can you remember your first prayer? Who, who taught you how to pray? Who helped shape who helped shape your, your, your experience of prayer? For many of us, our first prayer may have been as a, as a child. Others of you may have started praying later on in life. But it's such a gift for us to be given insight into how the Apostle Paul, the, you know, the great missionary and church planter and pioneer and writer of, of biblical books, how, how he prayed for people and for churches. Paul's prayers are a real gift to us, and it's certainly encouraging in my own life to to use the prayers of Paul as I, as I pray, to turn to some of the prayers that he prayed in the Word and just read them and, and pray those prayers for people and, uh, and, and for churches. And so if you notice, back in verses 3 and 4, we have what seems like an interrupted prayer. And so Paul says uh, in verse 3 and 4, he says, When I think of you, I pray... And then he goes on to another thought. And down in verse 9, Paul seems to return to this thought and tells us specifically now how he prays for the Philippian believers. So verse 9 says, and it is my prayer that. And so returning to this original thought now, he's about to, 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 to tell us exactly how he prayed for, for the Philippians. And at the heart of Paul's prayer for the Philippians is their, is their growth in grace. The Philippians were partakers of God's grace. And, and Paul, expressing confidence in God's ongoing work in their lives, he prays for their collective spiritual growth. And you'll note that Paul specifically prays for abounding love. Verse number 9, I pray that your love will abound. I, I, I pray that your love will flourish. In other words, I pray that you'll love well. Th this prayer of Paul is so very relevant to us. We live in a culture that loves love talks a lot about love and there's a lot of different you know, ways to talk about and express love. You know, it was, it was back in, in, 19, in 1967 that the Beatles wrote that, that famous song, All You Need Is Love. Love is all you need. What, what is love in our society? It's predominantly feeling-based. It's about self-discovery, unconditional acceptance. 
maybe we might say it's about pushing off constraints on, on how we feel and ex- how we express and show love. It's, it, it's, it's about finding self. And, I, and I, think, I think discerning Christians can sometimes see how our culture distorts love. We should also acknowledge that Christians and churches can also misrepresent love as God intends. And that we sometimes act and speak and think and, yes, post in ways that do not reflect the surpassing greatness and beauty of God's love. So, so let's consider Paul's prayer for abounding love. And as we do, we should note how Paul describes love in a way that we're probably not accustomed to. So let's, let's talk about this. First thing is that for Paul, love is not static. Love is growing. And so for Paul, we should be growing in love. We should becoming, be becoming more loving and experiencing a greater sense of love. We should be known for flourishing love. And so as a Christian church, we should be known for our love. We should be abounding in love for God and others. And so we note that Paul prays for a, a continuous growth in love. Again, verse number 9, he uses the word abound, to abound in love. That's a, that's a great word to describe this experience of love, to abound more and more, Paul says. That, that word abound, that's translated abound in this text here, is the same word, for example, that's used in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Where after everyone, everyone's needs are met and everyone has been, has been well fed, that word abound describes all the leftovers. How there was, there was just this excess. And then Paul further clarifies abound in the text and says more and more. Abound more. And so, and so Paul is just saying, look, I want you to love in excess. I want your experience of love for God and for each other to abound, to overflow. There's, there's more than enough. Abound to be in excess more and more. And so love is not static. Secondly, we note that love is here in this text more than a feeling. And Paul says that love means also a growth in knowledge and discernment. Now, we don't, often, we don't often think of love in this way, do we? Because these are cognitive words. But, but this is the love Paul prays will abound among the Philippians. It's a love that is informed and deeply affectionate. And here we have one of the most profound and precise statements about the influence of love. That God-inspired love is a growth in knowledge. This word knowledge in our text is used 15 times throughout Paul's letters. And each time this word appears, it speaks of the knowledge of God and of Christ. So this word is used by Paul over and over to speak of increasing in the knowledge of God. 
coming to understand the, the, the deep mysteries of God, coming to the revelation of the knowledge of God. And so growing in love, Paul says, is related to growing in the knowledge of God. And of course, we, we have a knowledge of God as revealed in, in his word. The common saying is that love is blind, right? <laughs> but but is, is love really blind? Well, not for Paul, it seems. For Paul, there is a strong relationship between love and knowledge. And so love aims at knowledge, and knowledge aims at love, and both seem to, to feed off each other. The, uh, the Catholic writer and theologian Frank Sheed said that it would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. And so I would, I, would suggest, I would suggest that every new thing that we discover about God is a new reason for loving him more. And that we, we all stand in need of an expanding vision of God, a deeper understanding of who God is as revealed in his word. And our love will abound more and more as our collective hearts are captured and captivated by who God is. So Paul says, love is not static. Love is more than a feeling and so abounding love rooted in the knowledge of Christ produces practical insight for living. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Think, think about that. There's a sense in which we are to love much and well. And you get the sense that, that love here is so much deeper and richer and thoughtful than what often passes for love in our culture. That God's love brings us into a posture of discernment to a place of recognizing what things are good and excellent. Now, that's relevant for us. I mean, that, that's relevant in every time and space. And so Paul seems to be saying that there are appropriate ways to love and that we are called to love much and well. And you'll note here that a motivating factor for loving much and well is, as Paul says, the day of Christ. We've sung about that this morning. Paul uses this phrase to, to point us to a yet future day when Christ will return. And the fact that we will see Jesus again for Paul should inspire us to live in love in ways that Jesus would be proud of. But let's, let's think about the direction of, of, of Bible love here. Abounding love, fueled by knowing more about God as revealed in his word, leads us, Paul says, to love appropriately in our everyday lives. In 
It is this, this knowledge-based love that helps us test our feelings to ensure our love is sincere, that our love is intelligent, and not just, as Eugene Peterson says, some sentimental gush. The love Paul is praying for helps us discern not only between what is evil and good, but also between what is best from second best. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so growth in love helps us distinguish between what is good better and best. And you know, that's something for us to be praying about. That's something that you and I can pray about individually, but also collectively. That, that we will that we'll grow in love so that we might discern to love in the best way in any given situation. And so growth in love should inspire us to ask God questions like this. What is the best way for me to love this person based on what your word says? You know, that, 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 that seems to be the direction here the, that, that, that's behind Paul's heart. It's informed affections that says, you know, God, how can I express your love to this person or into this particular situation, how can I best express love based on my knowledge of you and your word? Considering the knowledge of Christ and his word, there might be, there might be several ways that we might best demonstrate love for a person or a people, and so we need discernment to know the best way. Make sense? Not only is this applicable for us as individuals, but I think it has corporate, collective relevance as a church as we, as we seek to discern what is excellent for us. And sometimes the choice is not between what's bad or, or, or good, but sometimes it's a choice between, okay, this is good, but, but this is better. This, is, this, this would serve us well, but, but this is excellent. And so that's what Paul is, is praying for the Philippians, that they will have such a growth in love, such a growth in love coupled with the increased knowledge of God that they will be able to discern how to best love each other in community and how they'll be able to best discern what is excellent. And as I, as I, as I read and, and reread and meditated upon this, this prayer this week, I was, I was just becoming progressively struck by how deep and expansive this love is. I think that we could agree that relationships today are complex. Relationships in our cultural moment are multifaceted. And that exercising God-glorifying love requires God-inspired insight into people and situations. And the Philippians, it would appear, needed to know 
how they were to unite and how they were to love each other. And again, later on in chapter 4, just as an example, Paul is, again, I referenced this before, but Paul is going to mention, call out two, uh, two ladies, two women leaders in this church and call them to agree in the Lord. And, and so this, 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 this prayer for discerning love has specific relevance for this congregation. How are they to best love each other? And so we have need today of a greater knowledge of Christ, a deepening knowledge of God's Word, so that we might love, love much and well, an abounding love that leads to a discerning heart and mind. This is so relevant to us in our lives as we interact with people, as we navigate through complex relationships, and as a church trying to be faithful to our calling in this challenging, unique cultural moment. What a prayer for us to be praying. God, help us love much and well. May our love grow with knowledge and discernment. Abounding love that leads to discerning hearts and minds. Steve Lawson writes this. Authentic love requires penetrating discernment into the real needs of people as they find themselves in real life situations. Real knowledge does not refer to the mere head knowledge of facts. It means having a heart understanding of people's lives that perceives their deepest needs and how we can best meet those needs. Paul is not praying that the Philippians would become smarter but wiser in their care for one another. Compassion rather than cognition is his prayer. He requests that spiritual insight would be given to them so that they can know how best to love others. Amen. And so Paul then concludes his prayer by saying that all of this, this greater love, greater knowledge, more discernment, that all contribute to the glory and praise of God. And so we're left asking, well, what is the source of this love? Well, verse 11, Paul says that this all comes through Jesus Christ. And so I think as we read a prayer like this, I think reading a prayer like this and understanding the magnitude of this, of this prayer, it, it, it may cause us to recognize our own deficiencies and our own weakness, but I think what a passage like this aims to do is just point us afresh to God. And it points us that we need God, and, and we, we need to depend upon him. And we need to come before God and, and, and be driven to our knees and just seek sustaining, empowering grace. I, I, that's what happens to me. When I read a passage like this, is, this is not about uh, guilting us into praying more. No, this, this is about reading this, recognizing that the source of this is God. And so we go to him who's a God full of mercy and grace. And in response to our asking, God gives us abounding love in knowledge and discernment. Can we, can we pause right now and let's stand together and pray? Don't get excited. I'm not finished. Let, let's, just, let's just stand and pause right in this moment.
Before we finish up this sermon, let's pray. God, we pray for abounding love. Thank you for the insight that we have through, through this text today to see what your love is like, to, to see this call to love much and to love well. And I pray for us as individuals, but specifically as we've gathered collectively, I pray that as a church that we will abound in love with greater knowledge and discernment. Lord, give us as a congregation special insight into how to love people and how to love situations to help us discern what is excellent, God. Help us to love well. Help us to love much. Help us to abound with love and knowledge and discernment. In Jesus' name. See it, don't leave. So, I'm, we're, we're getting there. So, moving on, moving on then from this Paul's warm greeting, and we move into the, the body of the letter, and Paul says, he says next, you know, I, I want you know, to know in verse 12, you have your Bible open there. He says, I want you to know what has hap- that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, watch the obvious question. What happened to Paul? And, and here, this raises something that I don't think we've really um, identified yet in this series. It's an important part of this letter that Paul was writing this letter as a prisoner. From jail. And while there is a lot of speculation about the circumstances, the location, the setting of Paul's imprisonment, it is enough for us to acknowledge that Paul is not a free man at the writing of this letter. What we do know is that Paul was jailed for his efforts in preaching the gospel of Christ. Uh... Tuesday of this week, uh, I happened to be in uh, downtown Toronto, and I uh, had a had a visiting uh, pastor friend from Newfoundland uh, who was here. He was he was here uh, up at Muskoka for some for an Alpha uh, gathering, and then spent some time with us. and uh, And so we went down to uh, Toronto on Tuesday along with uh, Judah, my my uh, youngest son. Uh, and so we were we were walking down Young Street when I thought someone was going to be arrested. There was a competing, two competing street preachers, each with their own sound system. And so one, one young man had a mic hooked up to an amplifier, and uh, he, was, he was preaching. And then uh, about 10 feet away, uh, facing him, was another guy uh, with a mic and a amplifier, and he was kind of uh, countering this, this man and not, not agreeing. 
And of course, a huge crowd had gathered around. There was a lady there who was tremendously upset, and she was running up and getting in these people's faces, and it was quite exciting. And as you know what was happening, all of us were sitting there with our phones, capturing the glorious moment. Paul was arrested, I don't think for that, but he was arrested for preaching a revolutionary message. Because at the heart of the gospel of Jesus is that there is a new king. And in Paul's cultural moment, this was a revolutionary message that Jesus has taken the throne of the world. And that message landed Paul in jail. And this has got to be the worst case scenario for Paul, right? I mean, the, the little we know about Paul, he's a, he's a traveling missionary, a church planning missionary. I mean, he often doesn't stay all that long in churches. He goes and he, he's this pioneer and he starts works and then he goes on and he starts more works. And so this has to be the worst case scenario for Paul. He's not a free man now. And knowing that the Philippians would be grieved at his imprisonment, Paul writes to encourage by saying, he says, listen, friends, my imprisonment has turned out for the progress of the gospel. And this happened in two ways he identifies here. First of all, more people heard that Jesus is Lord through his imprisonment. And secondly, the text says, other believers are speaking more boldly. And so here's God at work again, taking what on the surface seems like something devastating to the work of the gospel, this, this big setback, but God uses it for the progress. And, and then we note, and very quickly, we won't spend a lot of time here, but you'll note in verses 15 to 18, as, as we read earlier, that there's more conflict as Paul appears to be at odds with some fellow preachers. And so yes, sometimes even fellow colleagues in the ministry don't always agree. <laughs> and there's some sort of conflict. And, but let's, let's, let's be clear here that the issue Paul has with this group is, is an issue of motive, not content. It appears that this group is causing Paul grief they were preaching the gospel, but they were preaching from impure motives, selfish ambition, no sincerity for personal gain. And I think Paul's conclusion may be best described by Eugene Peterson when he writes, it's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group is motivated by pure love, knowing that I am here defending the message, wanting to help. The others know that, I'm, that now that I'm out of the picture, they are, are merely greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition. And so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. 
How am I to respond? I've decided that I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, so I just cheer them on. <laughs> Good for Paul. How does, how does Paul persevere in the midst of tough circumstances? We'll revisit this, but we do know that Paul's exper- Paul experiences a joy that transcends his circumstances. It's an important theme that will reappear in this letter. But I, I think suffice to say that there are three things that Paul does here. Three focuses in his life that, that gives him a joy that transcends circumstances. He, he's gospel-motivated, he's Christ-centered, and he's others-focused. So let's finish up for real. The next time I invite you to stand, you're almost going to be ready to leave. How's that? Paul experiences a powerful reminder that God can turn major difficulties into opportunities for gospel progress. And that's good news for us. Your circumstances do not define God's ability to use you. And in fact, your own suffering may very well be a platform for God's glory and grace to be seen by more and more people. So let's not lose heart for something good and eternally powerful can come from tough times. And while we tend to pray prayers of deliverance and God, get me out of this, maybe we should pray more prayers like, God, help me to stand firm as you work out your good gospel purposes in the midst of my suffering. And so finally, Paul in verse 19 turns his thoughts to his future. Will he be free again? Will he die as a prisoner? And this is where we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. But Paul wrestles with the fact that on one hand, his personal circumstances are uncertain, but on the other hand, his future salvation victory is entirely certain. And so Paul expresses his confidence in verse 19 and says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul, Paul's hope finds its source in God and the prayers of others. Now, look, there is some ambiguity here, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a helpful ambiguity because what is Paul actually confident in? Is he confident in his future salvation? Or is he confident in his physical well-being and that he expects God to set him free from being a prisoner? Well, he may be playing on both these meanings. We, we do know that Paul uses the same term in other letters in the context of his physical well-being. But whatever Paul has in view, we see a picture here of this multifaceted relationship in which his friends, in this case the Philippian believers, partakers with him of grace, are drawn into a deeper communion with each other, with Paul and God. And don't miss the fact that Paul's confidence here 
is that the prayers of the Philippians and the provision of the Spirit will result in his salvation. And so Paul asks for prayer, knowing that the support and aid he will receive from the Spirit comes in a way unknown to us as a result of the prayers of God's people. Come Jesse and worship to you. And that's something that for us is a mystery, but yet should be very encouraging. That in ways unknown to us, God uses the prayers of other people to help us in our own journey of life. Paul says, I am confident that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm going to be okay. God's good purposes are going to be worked out. And friends, in that, we can all rejoice. Thank you that we can come to you today, Lord. Thank you that you are with us. We pray, Lord, that our love might abound today with knowledge and discernment. Help us love much and well. Thank you, Lord, for how the prayers of God's people have a way of working your good purposes in each of our lives. Lord, help us to pray one for another. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Bless, Lord, all of us together as we each go out into our different jobs and situations of life. Empower us all, Lord, to be your hands and feet this week, to serve you well, to love you well, to love others well. In Jesus' name.